0: Well, we were planning on having a guest speaker this morning, and uh, believe it or not, I am not John Bevere. Um, We ended up having a last-minute change of plans on our end of things, and John was incredibly gracious and understanding. Uh, We did our best to get the word out to everyone earlier this week, and if that missed you and you came here to hear from John, I apologize, and I do anticipate and trust that the Holy Spirit has something profound for you today. What we're talking about today is the fact that while many of us would would say we want more joy in our life, uh, we may even acknowledge the the biblical reality that we were uh, created by God for joy. Uh, We may even engage in some of the spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines that are designed to increase our intimacy with God and increase our joy. We may acknowledge all of those things, but for whatever reason, we still find this barrier, this threshold as it relates to our joy that we can't seem to get over or get past. That there is, it just seems like there's this limit that is keeping us from the joy that God has for us. And in order to understand the things that limit our joy or the things that hold us back from our joy, from the joy that that he's designed us for, We have to go back to the very beginning of the story because the human story begins with an extraordinary God creating an extraordinary world that is filled to the brim with joy. He creates the world and everything within it and he calls it good. The whole realm of nature he calls good. He creates the animals and calls them good. And then he crowns the whole of creation with human beings and doesn't just call them good. He calls them very good. The world is a paradise. And all of creation is living in perfect, unhindered, harmonious relationship with God. God is pleased to dwell with his creation. God delights in his creation and in the created order, and the whole of creation delights in God. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. If you brought your Bibles, you could go ahead and turn there. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. This is a turning point in the story. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. he says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now, what continues after this point is they sort of all start blaming each other. So, Adam blames Eve, and then Eve blames the serpent, and the serpent's like, "Okay, you, you caught me. it was me." right And so he 's busted, and he, and God pronounces these things over human beings, over man, over woman, and over the serpent. But what we see in this story is something unfolding that that is so profoundly dangerous to the human soul, not only does sin enter into the human story, but there's something else happening here and unfolding here so deadly to the human heart, the human mind, even our bodies, right? It's so destructive to your health, it's so destructive to your relationship with yourself, to your relationship with others, and your relationship with God. And I, I believe this one thing has the most potential to keep you from the joy that God has created you for. Today, we're talking about, in the context of joy, we're talking about everybody's favorite subject, we're talking about shame. Shame. In recent years, there's been an enormous amount of research into this topic, and and this is fascinating. So, children begin to experience shame. At the age of 15 months old. So that's before language is developed. It's before cognitive understanding, before feeling bad because of how somebody treated you. It's before the prefrontal cortex is developed. Already, you and I, at 15 months old, we are already experiencing things and sensing things within the context of our environment and within the context of our caregivers that. That leads into and plays into the hand of shame. And we don't even have the ability to understand what's happening yet at that age. See, shame has been happening in human beings. You and I have been managing some level of shame since 15 months old. We are shame management experts at this point. We've been dealing with it for a long time. Dr. Kurt Thompson writes this He says, We yearn to tell and hear stories of goodness and beauty. And this is the echo of God's intention. And we long for our stories to be about joy. Not just reflections of what we believe, but of who we are, who we long to be. But shame wants very much to infect every element of the mind in order to distort God's story and offer another narrative. See, Kurt Thompson and many others... Uh, have written and spoken extensively on this topic and in one way or another, they all say something like this. Shame is about identity. Guilt is about behavior. So they differentiate between the two because the story of shame tells us it's, it's not I did something wrong. Shame says something is wrong with me. Right? The, the story of shame is not I made a mistake. The story of shame is I am a mistake. See, shame says, I made a mistake, I am a mistake, and I will never learn, I'll never grow, I'll never improve, I'm just stuck the way that I am, and there's something fundamentally wrong with me as a human being. See, the story of shame, it's not I did something bad, it's I am bad. It's my identity, it's who I am. And what's amazing is before we get to Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 2 verse 25, it says that the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. See, the, the, the word naked, it's, it's, it's beyond just physical appearance. It's, it's talking about the experience of human beings that we are vulnerable. We are designed to be seen and known and loved completely with, with all of it being basically uh, seen by the, and known by the people around us. And yet our greatest fear is that if we're fully known, if we are fully seen, if we're fully exposed, that we won't be loved. Right, and so what we see here is they're naked and not ashamed. That's what God designed human beings for. Right, and and most people think that shame enters into the human story when they eat of the fruit. And sin and shame, the disease of sin, does enter the human story when they eat of the fruit. That's true. But there's an argument to be made that the seed of shame is planted back in verse one when the serpent asks a very simple and subtle question. The serpent says this, he said to the woman, did God actually say? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See, and then he goes on to say, you won't surely die? I mean, God, he's feeding you a bill of goods. I mean, he knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You'll be like him, knowing good and evil. He's holding out on you. See, before this moment, Eve is living in perfect joy. There is nothing wrong. There is nothing missing. She's in unhindered relationship with God and with all of creation. Everything is as God intended it to be, and then the serpent introduces a question, did God actually say? And this is how you can imagine the internal dialogue happening with Eve. All of a sudden, she's going, did God actually say that? Am I I missing something? Is Is there something inadequate in me that would cause God to withhold this good thing from me? Am I not good enough to know What God knows? Am I a fool for trusting God? Am I being duped by God? Can I trust him? And what is so inadequate in me that would cause God to withhold this from me? See, And and those questions, just did God actually say? All of a sudden that leads her down this road where she takes of the fruit and she eats it. Adam eats and the disease of sin is introduced into the world. And now every single human being on the planet is born into a world that is riddled with shame. Every human being. See, the path away from joy began with shame. The pathway back into the joy that God created you for is an invitation to face the things that we're terrified to face. It's an invitation to face our shame. To face the things in our life that we think make us most unlovable, most unworthy of love. And see, Jesus, this is the Christmas story. Jesus came down to set you free from the disease of sin, and he came down to set you free from your shame, to bring you into the joy that God created you for. This is why the angels say, we've got great news that will cause great joy in all people. Right, good news of great joy for all people. That includes you. You're included in all people. That includes you. Right, and what's so fascinating is what we find in Genesis chapter 3 is not only an introduction and a diagnosis of the human problem, but the offering of the solution as well. Chuck DeGroat, and he wrote a fantastic book, it's called Wholehearted. And in it, he he basically outlines three questions of Genesis chapter 3 that God asks and he basically says this, without brutal, vulnerable, transparent honesty about these three questions, we will never find our way back to the joy that God created us for. And so the three questions, we're going to go through these. The first one, the first question that God asks Adam and Eve after sin and shame enter the human story is this, where are you? Where are you? Right, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you now did God already know where Adam was yes of course he knew exactly where he was and so God is not asking this question for God's benefit he's asking this question for Adam's benefit in other words God is going to Adam he's saying hey I want you to be aware I want you to pay attention to this question I want you to get curious about your own life in other words you could say it this way how are you showing up in the world what, what is happening in you? What's showing up in your reactions? What is driving you to hide, to make fig leaves and hide? What is what's going on with you? What's showing up in your emotions and your reactions and your behaviors? Where are you? And look what Adam says. This is remarkable. We don't give Adam a whole lot of credit here because of the horrendous mistake that they just made, but this is pretty remarkable. So, verse ten, and he said, "This is his answer. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid." Because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, his response here has such a high level of self-awareness. It is remarkable. Okay, he says, I was afraid. Now, most of us, we, we go running through life without even understanding what we're feeling or why we're feeling it. Adam is naming his feelings. How many of you have difficulty naming what you're feeling in certain moments? Like when somebody asks how are you, oftentimes I'll be like, I think I'm good. I don't really understand what I'm feeling right now. I'm, I'm doing okay. It's difficult work and Adam, right out the gate, he's going, I was afraid, I was feeling afraid. And then not only what he was feeling, but why he was feeling it. I'm afraid. Because why? I was naked. I was exposed. I was vulnerable. I was ashamed. I was afraid because I was naked. And what did I do about it? I hid. See, most of us, we go running through life our entire lives. And there's something driving us to do things that we do or to react in ways that we react. And most of the time, we're running so fast through life that we never slow down long enough to even understand what's happening in us. And the very first question that God asks Adam is, where are you? What's going on with you? How are you showing up in the world around you? What's going on with your reactions and your emotions? And on top of that, you guys, we live in a world that is running at such a hurried pace. And we are we are doing our best to keep up with it. We're trying desperately to keep up with the pace of the world, and we don't have a free moment to slow down and even hear God asking us the question: where are you? What's going on with you? What's happening internally? In your soul, in your mind, in your heart, what's happening with you? Where are you? And even if we did slow down long enough to, to hear God asking us that question, most of us, we spend so much of our time and energy avoiding that question because we're terrified of the answer. We are terrified of being honest about what's actually happening in us. And the question that God asks, where are you? It's actually an invitation for us to slow down and begin to get curious. Not just about what's happening around us, but what's happening in us. What's driving our life? What's driving our behavior? Where am I? How am I showing up in the world? Am I anxious? Am I fearful? Am I worried? Am I defensive? Am I feeling insecure, am I feeling inadequate, am I aggressive, am I combative, why is that? What's going on in here that's causing me to show up that way? Am I ashamed, am I hot, what is it? And, and this is, King David, and I love the Psalms, but this is one of my favorite verses in the Psalms, this is why King David invites God into this moment. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Come, come into my life, the deepest, darkest places of my life and try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any, reveal in me, reveal to me if there's any grievous way in me. Why? Because I want to be led in the way everlasting. I want to be led into the fullness of joy that you have for me. So come into the darkest places of my heart, of my soul, of my life and do the work that you need to do so that I might be led in the way everlasting. See, this is an invitation for God to come and meet us where we've been hiding, to reveal in us the things that we would rather just put in our closets, because we don't want anybody else to know what's going on in there. We don't want anybody else to see the things that we think make us most unlovable by others and most unlovable by God. We have buried those things away. And the last thing we want to do is open that up and take a look at it. And so we spend so much of our time and energy running and hiding and medicating and numbing so that we don't have to face the things that we think make us most unlovable. See, even just talking about this, I already know this is happening in the room. You have something in your mind. And when I'm talking about that thing, the thing that you've buried away that God wants to deal with. I know already that your your body is pretty tense right now, isn't it? Like you, you just sort of tense up when you begin talking. What what is that? That is unaddressed shame in your life. And whether you recognize it or not, it is wreaking havoc in your life. And God wants to set you free. God wants to deliver you. He wants to bring you into the fullness of joy. But the only way to get there is to open up those doors and invite God into it. That's the only way. That's why God asked the question, where are you? And most of us, were terrified of doing that because we think, man, if they really, every one of us has a version of this story. If they really knew that, they wouldn't love me. If they really knew this, they would reject me. They'd dismiss me. I wouldn't be loved because, and because that's the story. We do exactly what Adam and Eve did. We cover up, we hide, we run. And notice in their story, one of the most effective ways to hide is by blaming. Got any blamers in the room? You ever notice that you don't have to teach your, your children to blame? You never sit down with them and train them, like, okay, now here's what you do when somebody says something about you that's true blame somebody else. You don't have to train them to do it, they just do it naturally. My 10 year old, uh, she is amazing. She's so sweet, so kind, but every morning brushing her hair, it's like the end of the world. And, and whenever she, like this last week, she lost her, her brush. And whenever we were asking her about it in the morning, it was like everybody else's fault that we couldn't find the brush, right? It, it just made no nobody else is using it. She, we all know, and she knows, that she had it last, but for whatever reason, it's everybody else's fault. We didn't teach her to do that. That's just in her, right? That's what shame does. It causes us to shift the blame to other people around us. When I was little, my, my, my best friend, Mike, he lived in the house right behind us. And I, I just this memory, it's just etched into my brain. So uh, one day after school, we were playing, and he had to go home for dinner. And so my mom and I, we walk, we walk him down to the back fence of our house. And, uh, and so he, we watch him kind of walk down, and he goes into his house. And for whatever reason, I still to this day, I didn't even know I knew these words. All of a sudden, three cuss words just came out of my mouth in rapid succession. I was like five, and my mom is standing right next to me and she was utterly shocked. I was shocked. Like I didn't even know I knew these words and within milliseconds you guys, I just remember trying to find all the excuses possible for why those words just came out of my mouth. Like I'm looking at the dog, I'm looking at the fence post, I'm trying to figure, like, and but what I'm, what I'm saying is immediately there was this temptation to look at everything outside of me as to why I did something that I was ashamed of, right? And that happens in every one of us. Like if, if, if somebody calls us to something, all of a sudden we're looking for all the reasons and all the extenuating circumstances and all the, like it, it, it is in us because of shame. It's one of the most effective ways to hide is by blaming, is by condemning others. My mom was incredibly gracious, but I can still Remember, just the sheer panic in me whenever that happened. But look at Adam and Eve. God says, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman. Whom you gave me, by the way. So he's blaming Eve and he's kind of blaming God. Right? It's, it's kind of your fault, God. You, you did this, right? Right? She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And she goes, well, who else is there? The serpent. (laughs) It was the serpent. See, God puts the spotlight on Adam and Adam immediately moves it to Eve and God and then Eve puts it on the serpent when the spotlight hits her. And the serpent's just like, yeah, it was me. In other words, it's not my fault. It wasn't me. It's not my fault. It's everybody else. There were extenuating circumstances you don't understand. It's anybody but me. Right? It was all these other things. And here's the truth is those of us that are walking around with unaddressed, unhealed shame are the ones that find it easiest to shame and condemn other people. Because we are terrified of acknowledging ownership over something that we've done, over something that we're ashamed of, or something that we were involved in. We are carrying such an enormous burden of shame. And so sometimes the way we find coping with it easiest to us is by blaming and defending and deflecting and shifting it on to other people. But only when you do the hard work of inviting God into the deepest parts of your shame, only then... Are you free not to condemn or blame or shame other people, only then are you free to fully step in to that spotlight and say, you know what, I take full responsibility. And it's okay, because everybody makes mistakes and grace tells me that I can learn. Shame tells me I'll never learn, grace says I can learn, I can grow. But so many of us were terrified to step into that light and say, you know what? Yeah. I made a mistake and I own it, but I can learn because God is a God of grace. So, the reason why God asked the question, where are you, is because He is deeply committed to freeing you from your shame. He is deeply, that's why He came down. He is deeply committed to freeing you from the thing you're most ashamed of, to bring you out of hiding, out of your isolation, out of the self-condemning and self-sabotaging narratives that are playing out in your heart and mind. Uh, Thompson writes, writes this as well. He says, those parts of us that feel most broken and that we keep most hidden are the parts that most desperately need to be known by God so as to be loved and healed. God came to find Eve and Adam to provide them an opportunity to be known as he knows anything else, which is completely, by the way, For only in those instances when our shamed parts are known do they stand a chance of being redeemed. We can love God, love ourselves, or love others only to the degree that we are known by God and known by others. See, when we're afraid of being known, of being seen, we hide, we isolate, we cover up, we blame, we condemn, we shame others. And as long as we are stuck in those patterns, It will keep us, our shame will keep us from experiencing the fullness of joy that is available to us in the presence of God. So the first question that God asks is, where are you? The second question is this. Who told you that? Who told you that? He said, who told you that you were naked? It it wasn't me. I didn't say that. What, What is the story that's playing out in your mind? Whose voice... Are you listening to? What voice are you listening to instead of mine? Uh, my, my son, Jack, he's, uh, he's doing this um, Ninja Warrior class in Spring Hill. It is awesome. I love going to watch him. And he's eight years old. And he's, it, like, he's going in. He's got to learn how to overcome all these different obstacles. And, and so I, I've taken him twice now. And I, I love just watching him do it. And I love just kind of the resilience that's being built into him as, as he's practicing these things, but one of the things I've noticed is that after every obstacle, after everything that he attempts, the first thing he does is not look to his peers or look to his coaches. The first thing he does is looks in the little bleacher section to see if I'm watching, to see if I'm noticing. And at eight years old, the story is already being written in his own heart and mind. Does my father see me? Does my dad believe in me? Does my dad think I can do hard things? Is my dad cheering me on? Is he proud of me? Does he see that I'm, I'm strong and I'm courageous and I'm doing things that are hard? Does my dad see me and he's looking for validation. His little heart and mind are already writing that story. Isn't it a little bit terrifying to think of the influence that you have as a parent? Because the reality is that there are gonna be moments where I'm able to validate him and affirm him and there's gonna be moments that I miss. There have been moments that I've missed or that I've I've blown it. And the reality is even if you and I as parents Even if we validate and affirm at every point imaginable, even if we do it perfectly, it's still not enough. They, uh, human beings, need a a person who is all-knowing and all-powerful that knows the depth of our insecurity, our sin, our shame, all of it, and looks at it and goes, yeah, that's got nothing on me. You belong to me. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm proud of you. You're my son, you're my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. See, we need affirmation and validation from a being that is all-knowing. And that's what God brings to us in the person of Jesus. See, e- even if we did it perfectly, we, we, every single one of us, we need something beyond human beings to validate us. We definitely need one another. But we need affirmation from a God who knows all and sees us in our worst moments and still says, you're mine. I love you. One of my favorite quotes is from Theodore Roosevelt. It's uh, often referred to as the man in the arena. He says this, "It's, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. When God... Uh, called us uh, back to this area um, and we began to hear from the Lord in 2018 and we moved back here for the role here at Grace Chapel in 2019. As soon as we began to take those steps and consider those steps, I'm just gonna bring you in to some of my internal dialogue during those seasons. Rob, come on. Who are you kidding you're the pastor of a small church in the Pacific Northwest. There's no way you're ever going to measure up. You're never going to be enough. No one's going to care what you have to say. You're not a good pastor. You're not a good leader. And who do you think you are? Nobody cares what you think. Nobody cares what you have to say. Nobody will be impacted by your story, by your life, You will not make any difference at all. Why are you even considering this? And the truth is, every single person in this room has a version of that story playing out in your heart and mind right now. Every single one of us. You'll never amount, you'll never be good enough. Don't you remember where you came from? But don't you, rem- I mean, you were an addict, for goodness sake. What, what, what makes you think you can make any difference at all? You, who, who, What you said, what you did, what happened to you way back when? You, don't you remember your spouse left you? What makes you think you can do this? Y- your father abandoned you. What makes you think you could actually accomplish something? What makes you think you could ever be good enough? Who do you think you are? If that's you today... God's question to you is this. Who told you that? Who told you that? Who told you that? Who told you that you would never measure up? Who told you that you'd never be good enough? Who told you that you can't because of your past? Who told you your story is so broken it could never be redeemed by God? Who told you these things? You didn't come up with it. God's not telling you. See, the reality is, All of the shame in our story is leveraged by the serpent in order to hold us back from the joy and from the purpose that God has designed us for. See, the devil devil wants to hold you down and keep you from pressing in to the beauty that God has for you in life. And the only way you're gonna be able to get set free from your shame is by opening those doors and saying, God, I need you to deal with this once and for all. I need you to come in. I need to face my shame with you. I need to experience your love in the midst of the deepest, darkest parts of my life that I don't want anybody else to know about. See, can we just... What I loved about pastoring in the Pacific Northwest is people were honest. There was, no, it was they just showed up with all of their brokenness. They're like, yeah, I'm a hot mess and I, 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 I want to love Jesus. I wish I loved him more, but I don't love him enough. And there's all these. See, in the South, you know what we do? We show up and we put on masks. And we fake it. It is dead, empty religion. And as long as we pretend, as long as we wear the masks, we will never experience the freedom that Christ came to give us. As long as we're pretending, we will never press into the joy of being known by God and being known by other people. Is it terrifying? Absolutely. Is it worth it? Absolutely. See, we've said before that our greatest need is to be fully known and fully loved. And our greatest fear is that if we are fully known, we will not be fully loved. And so we hide. And God is coming to you saying, where are you who told you that? Come out of hiding. Lay down the mask and come to me and let me set you free. See, the beautiful reality of what Jesus did for us is Romans 8.1 is absolutely true. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are not condemned. And this leads us to our third question. Where are you? Who told you that? And where are you taking your hunger? Genesis 3.11, God asked, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Where are you taking your hunger? What are you chasing in order to satisfy the broken parts of your life, in order to quiet your shame? The serpent was leveraging my past and my shame to tell me, that I'll never be good enough. Who do you think you are? You can never learn. You'll never grow. You'll you'll never step into, like the learning curve is too high. And and listen, we all have a version of that. There are two incredibly dangerous responses to shame that we just need to be aware of. There are two incredibly dangerous responses. Number one, danger number one is agreeing with the shame. (laughs) Number one is agreeing with it And, like, think about the man in the arena. When you go to open that door, shame says, who do you think you are? And you go, you're right, and you close the door. And you never step in. You never take risks. You never trust God when it makes no sense at all by worldly standards. You never press in. You never dare greatly. You never move into the good things that God has for you, into the great things that God has for you, if you would be willing to trust him in in the scary moments of life. See, it's always just flying under the radar, always playing it safe. I mean, think about Peter, okay? Peter denies Jesus three three times, right? Jesus is crucified, and what does Peter do after the crucifixion of his friend, his rabbi, his messiah, What, what does he do? He doesn't go and change the world. What does he do? He goes back to fishing. What shame does is it cripples your ability to imagine the new thing that God wants to do with you. Shame keeps you in your past. Peter goes back to fishing, why? Because he's ashamed of what he's done. He's ashamed that he denied Jesus three different times. And what I love about his story, like this guy, just think about what he experienced. He stepped out of a boat and literally walked on water with Jesus, at least a couple steps. The guy who courageously stepped out of the boat gets back in the boat and goes back to fishing because of shame. He can't imagine God using him for anything profound because of what he had done because he betrayed Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Oh man, this just speaks to the goodness of God. This is amazing. What does Jesus do? He cooks some breakfast on the beach. After the resurrection, Jesus shows up on the beach. He tells them, like, hey, throw the net on the other side. And they catch a bunch of fish, and then they realize it's Jesus. They go swim to the shore, and Jesus looks at Peter. I mean, he is coming for his shame. And he goes, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, "You, you know I do. You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes. He asked him a third time. Peter's hurt. But see, what, what Jesus is revealing, he's going, you denied me three times, and you're professing your love for me three times. And I want you, I want you to recognize that I've got something for you that you cannot imagine. That's why every time he says, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. What, what are you doing? Fishing. The thing that you think makes you most unlovable by me, I, I'm not even worried about. I, that, that doesn't phase me. The deepest, darkest part of your shame does not even phase me. Feed my sheep. Preach the gospel. And Peter, all of a sudden, because Jesus gently and directly goes after Peter's shame, Peter is set free to lead the way in the early church and Peter is able to press into the beautiful thing that God wants to do with him. See, Jesus wants you to open that door. He's coming after your shame today, church. He is coming after your shame. You think about. Like what what does Jesus do with Adam and Eve? He pursues them and invites them out of their shame. What does Jesus do with Peter? He pursues him and invites him out of his shame. What is he doing with you today? He is pursuing you to invite you out of the thing that you think makes you most unlovable by God and by other people. He's coming to set you free. Jesus wants you to open that door to him. The things you've been avoiding, the things that you've been running from, the things that you've been bearing, he wants to meet you there and love you in the face of the things that you think make you most unworthy of love. So that's the number one dangerous response is agreeing with the shame and never stepping into the new thing that God wants to do with you. The second danger is this. Living your whole life trying to prove your shame wrong you're still controlled by your shame. Living your whole life trying to quiet your shame through performance, through power, through success, through achievement, through trophies, through recognition. And and the truth is we have all developed very complex and intricate methods on dealing with our own shame. Whether Whether it's performance and achievement or whether it's numbing, through technology or sex, or substances, or people-pleasing, or gaming, or gambling, or overspending. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways that we we play these things out. Those things, see, those are external indicators of an underlying problem. These are symptoms of the problem. Right, and every religion, every... Here's the thing. Religion, do you ever realize that religion makes the best fig leaves? I mean, it is, we use God to hide from God. Oh, how are you doing? Oh, man. I'm blessed, brother. His mercies are new every morning. Praise God. And meanwhile, you're behind the scenes gossiping in order to make yourself feel better because you're putting others down in order to elevate yourself. But God is good, brother. You're living in sin. Amen, gossip is sin, amen somebody, yeah, okay. Right, you're you're living in sin. But God is good, his mercies are new. Or, or, Or man, God is good, he's fantastic, but yet there's this secret addiction that you don't want anybody else to know about and you've been living in it for 15 years. See, we use God to hide from God. We're using God as our fig leaf. We're using dead, empty religion to hide from God, to hide from others, and even to lie to ourselves because we're terrified of what will happen if we unlock that door and invite God into it. In the midst of Adam and Eve's shame, God goes after him. In the midst of Peter's shame, Jesus goes after him. In the midst of your shame, Jesus is coming after you. Thompson writes this, He says the the defining relational motif or theme for humankind is not that we need to work as hard as we can or at least harder than we are. It's not to do our best or to guarantee that our children will have a better life than we had. It's not about being right or the acquisition of power. Each of those and other versions like them play into the hand of shame's anxiety. No, rather we were created for joy. Not a weak and watery concept of joy that merely dilutes our sadness and pain. Rather, it is the hard deck on which all of life finds its legs, a byproduct of deeply connected relationships in which each member is constantly known. See, we're we're terrified if we're actually known by others and actually known by God that we won't be loved. But I want you to see this. Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews 12 invites us to this. says, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What? Despising the shame. Dismantling your shame. Destroying the shame. Despising the shame is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, through the suffering of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, your shame is dismantled. And it says, for the joy that was set before him, that's, that's you. The, the thing that you think makes you most unlovable by God, God looks at that and, and goes, okay, yeah, so what? I, I can redeem that. I, I'm all powerful, remember? Right, and I, I, I've got mercy forever for you. I, I, I've, I, I've got that covered. You are my joy, I see that. I know about that. I want you to see me seeing that and looking at you going, so what? You're mine. I love you. You're my joy. See, it. the cross frees you to come to God with anything and everything because he dismantled your shame on the cross. He paid for your shame on the cross. You can be free from the thing that that you think makes you most unworthy of love from God, from others, or even unworthy of loving yourself, you can look at that in the face of the cross and go, thank you, Jesus, you paid for it. Thank you, Jesus, you died to set me free. You died to bring me into the joy that you've created me for. See, it's Jesus who frees us from our shame, and you are his joy. He gladly endured the cross to free you from your shame. I, I love Hebrews chapter 2, this, this verse in, in some of the counseling work uh, I've been doing the last couple of years. This verse has changed me. And I, I want to read this to you, and I want you to hear this from the Lord this is so profound. Hebrews 2, 10 through 12, it says this. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their, that's talking about us, pioneer of our salvation, perfect through what he suffered, but the, uh, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So it's talking about Jesus, so Jesus who makes people holy and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. So Jesus is what? Not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. I'll just The thing that's come up in you as we're talking about this, the thing that you think makes you most unlovable by God, bring that to the forefront of your mind. I want to invite you into this moment. Jesus knows about that. He's not surprised by that. He knows that's there. And now you know that he knows that's there. Okay? He looks at that, whatever that is, and he looks at you. He says, I'm not ashamed to call you brother or sister. I'm not ashamed of you. You are my joy. You, other people can say whatever they want. People will talk. People will say, what? You belong to me. You are mine. And I'm not ashamed of you. If that's true, What's keeping you from bringing your whole self into the presence of God? If that's true, if that's what he says about you, he's not ashamed of you. If that's true, what's keeping you from being known by God and allowing yourself to be known by the people around you? Well, someone might you know, take advantage, they might hurt me or whatever. No, that, that is going to happen. You are gonna get hurt by people. That is true, but it's worth it. <laughs> the, the, the other side of that is you, you put up walls and you protect yourself and you're never loved. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. So here's, here's the question, the questions for you today. Where are you? How are you showing up in the world? What's showing up in your reactions and your behaviors and your emotions? What are you feeling? Why are you feeling it? And what are you doing about it? Where are you? Who told you that? Who told you that you were inadequate? Who told you that you would? Never measure up. Who told you that you couldn't learn? Who told you that you were condemned? That you can't trust God? Who told you those things? And where are you taking your hunger? What are you using to cope, to medicate, to cover up? the thing that you think makes you most unlovable. Jesus wants to set you free today. I'm gonna invite our prayer team forward and I'm gonna pray over us and and listen, I don't know what it is for you. I, I, I don't know what it is. But I know we're all carrying something. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's a divorce in our past. Maybe infidelity is a part of our story. Maybe there's something that happened to you when you were young that you believe makes you unlovable or the devil comes along and says, you know what, you're damaged goods. Here's here's the invitation for you today. Jesus wants to free you from all of that. And it's scary and it's terrifying and vulnerable. And yes, that's absolutely true. And it's worth it doing the deep work. The way, the pathway away from joy began with shame. The, the pathway to joy begins with doing the hard work of digging through our shame with Jesus and with other people. So that's what this is here for. That's what we're here for. Church, would you stand with me? I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna do some work with the Lord. So Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for what is so clearly laid out in Scripture. That you're not scared or intimidated by the things that we are most ashamed of. but God you see those things you're not surprised by them you see those things and you look at us and say I'm I'm not intimidated by this this has nothing on me you're mine I love you I'm not ashamed of you so come to me and let me set you free God thank you for the invitation thank you for the questions where are you who told you that Where are you taking your hunger? What voice are you listening to? The beautiful reality that you look, you look at us and you say, "I, I created you. You're mine. You belong to me. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or what anybody else says about you or what's been said over you. You're mine. I love you. I've got joy everlasting for you. If you would just invite me in, I would set you free. God, help us to respond to that invitation today. No matter how scary it is, how vulnerable we feel, no matter how much shame we're carrying on our shoulders, God, it is a heavy burden that you are inviting us to let go of today. And so, God, we come to you now, our whole selves, into the presence of God, where there is fullness of joy. Amen. I don't know what's going on in your story right now. I don't know what you're facing. And maybe what we talked about today, you're going, that doesn't apply to me at all. I would say this. Whatever it is that you need prayer for today, come forward. Respond to him. Let's do do the work that God is inviting us to do today. Amen. Come forward, let's respond.